What is up, my podcast listeners and all my YouTube subscribers and watchers? I don't know what you want to be called, but my peeps on uh, YouTube. And shout out again for everyone that has subscribed to my channel. Like, I'm really close to 250 subscribers, and you guys have been watching all of my stuff quite a bit and I am really really happy to see that you guys are enjoying my content and another big shout out to Jason from RevFit for producing this t-shirt with my last name that's super super long and it was able to fit on the shirt which I was surprised and stoked about um, because you know what it's been probably at least two or three years since I was on his podcast um, Actually, promoting my first ebook, which, by the way, the Ironclad Body Training System Volume Two, um, even though that was four two, um, is on track for probably a late summer release. So keep an eye out for that. I'm super pumped. I'm in the editing stages right now, and it's a beast. It's over a hundred thousand words. Yeah, there's a lot to it, but. Um, Speaking of YouTube, I started getting a lot of comments on my videos and um, someone started mentioning about um, how to improve hip mobility. And if you watched my previous um, episodes, I kind of talked about hip pain in general and how to improve hip mobility. But for the sake of this episode, I'm going to go and show three mobility drills, three, that people need to be doing on a daily basis or at least like two to three times a week um, to really actually influence change at a muscular level. Cellular level, not a muscular level. I don't know what I was talking about that. But um, to kind of put in some context, so if you are a gym goer, fitness enthusiast that, you know, you like go on YouTube and you watched like how to improve my hip mobility and someone gives you a couple exercises and mobility drills and whatever it is, but that doesn't really actually change at a cellular level of how your hip is designed, moves and everything like that. What it does do is prep your hips for exercises and the exercise just, you know, kind of loosens the joint, lubricates it, and gets it prepped and ready for an exercise that you choose to do that day. And the biggest one is like any hip mobility drill, there's some sort of like hip opener, some sort of hip flexor stretch, there's some sort of like uh, band that straps around your hip and you connect it to a fucking squat rack and it like yanks your hip socket and you get a deep like pigeon like stretch and sure like that will feel good in the moment but it's not actually doing you any justice for long-term adaptability and change so this is where the kin stretch principles go in and this is where it kind of all stems from the comments that i got from uh, a couple tutorial videos on um, hip flexion and you know, looking back at that specific exercise, like I am working, um, what's it called? Uh, hip external rotation with flexion, 
but I don't know, I could be wrong on this. I wouldn't spend that much time with hip flexion specifically if I had a goal of just improving overall hip mobility. I find that those hip flexors are kind of like already so yanked and tight. Um, getting into like hip flexion stuff, I don't, I, I haven't seen yet in my experience a uh, high payoff compared to focusing on hip internal rotation, external rotation, and hip extension. Those three are the ones that I usually attack first and then kind of pepper in um, hip flexion specific stuff. So when you look at things like uh, a barbell squat, squats in general, split squats, lunges, things like that, those three are very much needed in order to do that. So I tend to spend my time focusing on that. Um, and I wanna go over three specific exercises that I teach in my kin stretch and that I do specifically almost on a daily basis to ensure that I'm constantly influencing um, tissue change. So the whole kind of concept behind kin stretch, and I've done a whole um, episode on it, is that I am now inserting information at a cellular level to influence tissue change. Imagine that every day you wake up, you have all these muscle cells waiting for input, ready for some sort of input to create a reaction. If I choose to go sit in a desk for 10 hours that day, all those muscle cells go, well, you're sitting, you're not moving your hip at all, I'm going to just stay here and make shit tight to make you more efficient at sitting. So that's why people feel super fucking tight over a long period of time when they're at a desk job for years, right? Whereas if I decide to do my cars routine every single uh, day, if I decide to do the three exercises I'm about to do and demonstrate um, on a daily basis, I'm constantly feeding information because remember like cells um, react to different things and specifically in this scenario, I'm talking about force. Force is gonna be the isometric contractions that we're gonna create in certain positions and if I continually do that over and over and over again, those muscle cells are going to create more resilient tissue and more like smarter tissue as I like to call it. And that allows you to create more change at a structural level with your um, ligaments and tendons and things like that, which will allow you to um, get more range of motion, but more importantly, more control in those ranges. So that's the biggest thing that I see value to kin stretch and the FRC principles is that you gain control of your joint, your ligaments, your tendons, your muscles in those end ranges where most of the time injury occurs. So that being said, if we can continually influence at a cellular level for our tissue to be more resilient, we're literally building an ironclad body. We're building a bulletproof thing that we are in right now, our meat and bones. So then when we go to the gym or we pick up our dog from the ground or we pick up our kid, our body is resilient enough to withstand that external force. So without further ado, we are going to get into these three exercises that you should be doing every single day. 
or at least a couple times a week to influence some serious change on those hips. So if you are just listening, I'm gonna do my best job to really describe what I am doing. But I highly suggest you hit the show notes after this and get to the probably, by the time I'm finished talking about explaining this, the nine minute mark of this episode to see the demonstration. So I'm gonna move my camera a little bit lower to get a better angle of what we're about to do. All right, oh, my back just cracked, that's amazing. Okay, let's maybe just adjust this a little bit more. Okay, so I am going to be in a seated position with my legs super wide. I really hope these pants are gonna do me justice. So if I'm in a seated position, my legs are gonna be super wide. And from here, I'm going to drop. I'm gonna go on a little angle so you don't have a full-on crotch shot the whole time. I'm gonna drop both legs over to my left side. And actually, I'm gonna go this way. So on my left side. So this back leg, my knees in line with the hip, the knees in line with my ankle. My left leg's in front, my left ankle's in line with my knee, my knee's in line with my hip. Hence the 90-90 position. So we're going to stretch out our left hip into external rotation and we're going to stay here a while. But the way we can get into external rotation a little bit more effectively is with my lumbar spine. I'm going to arch it and almost try to push my chest out. And like if I had a Superman logo, I'm trying to show it off to the whole world. I'm then going to use my hands to support and I'm going to lean forward until I feel a deep stretch in that left glute slash hip. What I don't want to see is people rounding their back, kind of like if you were doing a pigeon stretch in yoga, you're going to be a little bit more upright. So the more I can tilt that pelvis and that arching that low back, I am literally opening up my pelvis to get more into the deep stuff of the hip, which we're trying to influence. So in this position, I am holding this for two minutes. The reason behind the two minute mark, and again, you can do three, you can do four, but two minutes is usually the special number that they figured out that in at a cellular level, all the little stretch receptors are now shooting information back and forth waiting for instruction. And that's what we were kind of talking about before, about how we're going to be able to influence tissue change. Those muscle cells are waiting for information, excuse me and we need to send some info with force and how we're going to do that is we're in our in range we are breathing deeply i'm thinking belly breaths every inhale i'm pushing against my thigh and every exhale i'm trying to hollow my diaphragm we are going to create an isometric contraction on the outside of our joint that being said i'm going to think of driving my left ankle and left knee down into the ground as hard as possible. When I say that, I want you to think of going to your gym or picking up literally the heaviest object in your house or the heaviest weight in your house, but I want you to think that you're trying to lift, you know, a hundred pound dumbbell. Your body's not gonna be loosey-goosey to go pick it up. You're like, oh shit, it's a hundred pounds. I need to like make sure everything's tight, my core's on and I'm gonna pick that thing up. Same concept here. When I tell my people in kin stretch to start driving down, 
a lot of times they're not pushing down hard enough because I can see in their face they're just like, it's like calm and relaxed. It needs to be like you're breathing hard, you're irradiating as much pressure as possible to drive that leg down to create an isometric contraction. It's like if you had your car in with the e-brake on with a fucking like 3,000 pounds inside it and you're trying to push it up a hill. You're using maximal effort to get there. That's what I want you to achieve. We're sending a signal to all those muscle cells. We're creating that um, isometric contraction. We're sending that force, that external force and load into the tissue itself. So I do this for 10 seconds. Another thing I do to kind of help people create tension is with their hands, they're pushing into the ground along with their leg. You do that for 10 seconds, you're gonna let go but you're not gonna lean back like, oh shit, like that was fucking hard. You're gonna throw yourself further into the stretch. Cause anytime you do an isometric contraction, you kind of communicate to your nervous system to like take off that emergency brake a little bit, right? So you'll notice that after you finish that contraction, you let go and you're like, oh, I can go a little bit further. From here with your new acquired range, we're now gonna do an isometric contraction on the opposite side of the hip. So we just did, outside and now we're going to do the inside. So when I tell people to go again, we're going to do something called a rails contraction where we're driving our same left ankle and same left knee up towards the ceiling. And literally it's not going to come off the ground, but you're going to do everything you got to lift that thing up. After trying to lift it, what I want you to think of, actually before that, what I want you to think of is try not to like lean back. So if I lean back here, I can lift this leg no problem. But if I'm constantly pushing my torso forward, arching that low back and then try to lift, you're not gonna go anywhere, but you're gonna create a better contraction that's gonna be worthwhile. So, after the 10 uh, seconds are up for both, so we do a 10 second contraction for pails, which is pushing down, and a 10 second contraction of um, rails to create that isometric contraction on both sides of the joint. Now, we've created all this change at a cellular level and at a nervous system level. We have this new range of motion. We need to reinforce that this is our new normal. That, you know, we are going to challenge this new acquired range for a nervous system to remember that we have this amount of range of motion. So the next thing, and this is still part of the first exercise, I kind of like layer this together. So what we just did was a 90-90 position for hip external rotation with pails and rails. Now we're going to do an active range liftoff with this same leg. So we're going to challenge our um, hip external rotation actively. So from there, what I'm going to do is going to take my left ankle and think of lifting it up off the ground and then back down. If you're watching, you notice that my entire torso did not break apart. The only thing moving was my leg. I did not lean back, because again, if I lean back, poof, this guy can go up no problem, I can hang out here all day. But if I'm trying to stay upright in this 90-90 position and now try to lift, it's a lot harder. Now I'm working my true active range within hip external rotation. So I'll usually do like five second holds five times. 
and then I'm gonna do the same thing on the other side where I hold the stretch for two minutes, pales contraction, rails contraction, and then the active range liftoffs. So, we just covered hip external rotation. Freaking awesome, right? We're also going to do hip internal rotation, and this is where this stuff gets tricky. So, I'm still in my 90-90. Say for argument's sake that, you know, I flipped over, I did my other side, same thing, you know, did my little two minute stretch, pales, rails, contraction, contraction, 10 seconds. I did my liftoffs, everything's great. Now we're gonna do hip internal rotation. So if I now switched over sides, I have my right leg forward and my left leg back in my 90-90. Now to do hip internal rotation, I'm gonna take my torso and rotate it over to my left leg in the back this hip is already into internal rotation. I'm leaning further forward to get some stretch in this hip. What I see a lot is a lot of people feel uncomfortable because this is not a comfortable position. So a lot of times what I'll get people to do have less um, range of motion in their hips is they can stay back here and try to get their torso as straight as possible or they find that position where they try to rotate as much as possible but keeping this nice and flat and then leaning in so it's all kind of dependent on where you are with your mobility now if i am leaning forward i am again holding for um two minutes after the two minutes is done i'm going to do a pales contraction and in this case i'm thinking about my left knee and left ankle again pushing down as hard as possible and then after the 10 seconds are done, I'm gonna to try to get further into the stretch. And then I'm gonna do a rails contraction, which is the opposite, where I'm driving my knee and ankle off the ground up towards the ceiling. Remember, it's not gonna come off the ground. It'll only come off the ground if I lean so far back and it's like, oh, look at that, no problem. If I'm here, it's gonna be really hard to lift. And that's what we want. We wanna create an isometric contraction in this hip. And again, in this position, you can push your hands into the ground, or what I like to do is create fists and squeeze the crap out of my fists. Sometimes I'll have tennis balls, lacrosse balls, massage balls, whatever it is. Squeeze, 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 squeeze to create more tension. Now, we've done all this work, influenced the tissue, influenced our nervous system to give us a little bit more range. Just like the other side, where we did hip external rotation and we were doing active range liftoffs, we've got to do active range liftoffs in hip internal rotation. So now I'm gonna rotate my torso to face the right. And from here, when I tell people in my class to lift, what you're gonna think about doing, keeping your left knee in contact with the ground, you're gonna lift your back ankle, holding it there, and then back down. I always tell people, in kin stretch, when your hands are up here by your chest and torso, makes things hard. When your hands place are, are placed down to the ground on both left and uh, right side, a little bit easier. If I lean over to my right hand, a little bit easier. And then if I go into my elbow like a side plank, even easier. So I always tell people you gotta find a position where when I tell you to lift, you're not like, oh my God, and I'm leaning forward to get more. And this is not where it is. You wanna be in this upright position when I tell you to lift, boom, you're lifting into internal rotation actively. And again, five second holds, and that's gonna do a lot of great things. What will happen, and I see this a lot, when people are new to kin stretch, to FRC, whatever it is, 
I see this in class all the time. I'll tell people, all right, lift. And then huge cramp in this outside of the hip. People do this thing. They're like, oh my God, what the hell's going on? And essentially what that means is you're sending a signal to your body and your brain's sending the signal to all the muscles involved in hip internal rotation actively. And they still don't really understand what the hell you're talking about. So they go, okay, well, I see that you want me to do something. It's not really coming out clear, so I'm gonna cramp, and hopefully that's what you want. It's not what we want, but that's kind of like a neurological, um, I guess, response. And you gotta fight through it. Like a lot of times, you know, you have to practice, 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 and it's kind of the, what's it called, the, the lane or the the pathway to actually having full control over your body. Now we just did hip external rotation, hip internal rotation, and now we gotta do hip extension. So again, remember hip extension is anytime you extend your hip. So things like deadlifts, glute bridges, running, sprinting, all require adequate hip extension. And if you're doing lunges, you're putting your hip into extension. A lot of times people feel super, super, super tight on the backside of their thighs, so their quads, their hip flexors. So in this case, you want to work hip extension with pails and rails. So one of my favorite ways of doing this, and because my floor is a little bit, um, well, not the floor, but the uh, space, that I have is a little bit uh, hard on the knee. I highly, highly recommend that you have a mat or something for your knee. So essentially what we're going to do, and hopefully I have enough room here. I'm gonna have my right knee down and left leg forward, kind of like a hip flexor stretch, but we're not gonna just do a hip flexor stretch. What we're gonna do in this position, we're almost gonna go into a runner's pose. And I want this back knee to be as my pants are tight. <laughs> I don't rip these. So I'm gonna try to get my leg into almost like a runner's pose. And I'm literally just pushing my hip down. So in this position, I am working hip extension. I'm gonna hold this for two minutes, just like the other two. After the two minutes, I'm gonna create a Pales contraction where I'm gonna push my knee into the ground, but how I'm gonna do that is I'm gonna drive my heel up towards my bum, and now I'm gonna think of driving this knee forward into the ground as hard as possible. I'm squeezing my ass as hard as possible. Hold, 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 and from there, I'm gonna dip down a little bit further because I just communicated to my nervous system, and then my rails, I'm gonna think of taking my heel up towards the ceiling and trying to get my knee off the the mat but it's not going to come off the mat but again we are trying to create an isometric contraction so if I try to do that right now you can almost see like my glute turns on and I'm trying to drive it up and this is really freaking hard but this is how I'm getting that isometric contraction for all my hip extenders I'm holding I'm holding I'm holding and I'm relaxing now we just did a lot of great stuff for hip extension and now I need to challenge it so a great way to do that is 
I'm going to be lying down in a prone position. I think you guys can still see me. Both my hands are going to go on top of each other. And I know it's kind of got out of the frame, but it's more so to see um, my legs doing the work. So my forehead's going to be down. I'm going to take my right heel, because that's the one that I just worked on. I'm going to think of squeezing my glute first and going into hip extension. So again, my forehead's going to be down, and I'm just holding this isometrically. Hold, 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 and then back down. What I don't want to see, and this is how people cheat, is they'll lift, but they open up their hip to get more. You want to think of having the two bony parts of your pelvis pushing down into the ground, and then you're just working on hip extension. What I don't want to see is the knee bend. You want to keep it nice and straight, and you're squeezing, 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 hold, back down. Squeezing, 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 hold, back down. So now we just challenged our new acquired range for hip extension. So, little note on that guy. Because I see this a lot in my kin stretch and even my clients that I train. When people have terrible glutes, just that don't fire or turn on or activate, they'll tend to feel it in their hamstring and low back. What that tells me is that their body just doesn't understand how to extend the hip through the glute. A lot of it, I just tell people like, slow down, think with your brain that, okay, I need to squeeze my ass. I need to squeeze my ass and now I'm going to lift my heel up. And a lot of times it's learning how to make that brain and muscle connection. And it does take time. Sometimes I'll tell people to like lift up, hold it for like 10 seconds. Cause sometimes the longer it is, you have more time for your brain and muscles to kind of figure out what the hell's going on. And um, over time it will improve. But sometimes it just doesn't work and you need to throw in a different exercise. But for the sake of this video, because we're almost reaching um, 30 minutes, I'm gonna keep it with those three. So we have hip external rotation and then for pails and rails, and then we have those active range liftoffs. We have our hip internal rotation, and then we have those hip internal rotation um, active range liftoffs. Then we had our hip extension pails and rails, and then we had the prone uh, hip extension active range liftoffs. So, that being said, if you did this like once a day, so all that time, right? You have three exercises, two minutes each and the active range liftoffs, this will take less than 10 minutes. If you did this every single day, once a day, guaranteed in three months, you're gonna see a huge difference, huge difference in your squat, in your you know, running, in your lunging, in like anything that deals with hips. Like sometimes people just don't want to put in the effort and this is this is like it, it, you gotta grind it out over and over and over again and these are the ones that I use in my classes all the time and people already say like that are consistent once a week that after a month they're like yeah my hips feel awesome my shoulders feel awesome because we're also doing shoulder things in there but primarily like hips is the epicenter of our bodies it requires a lot of mobility and movement and you know, if we constantly focus on those three kind of positions and variations of those positions, hip mobility is taken care of. So I'm going to leave it there. Hopefully that was helpful. 
uh, let me know if you have any questions and in the comments like on YouTube if you're watching this on YouTube like write a comment I will respond back and give you some feedback give you some other exercises that could help but these three are like prime like this is what you need um, so all those people listening hit the show notes to watch this and also make sure you subscribe to my channel because I post a lot of stuff and I'm going to be probably by next weekend I have I think close to a hundred tutorials that I need to film and I'm gonna be uploading those a lot in the next upcoming months because I need them for my ebook so look out for that um, hit the show notes as well add me on Facebook and Instagram because again I post a lot of videos a lot of photos that you need to be able to see not just listen to my podcast um, and again share my podcast with friends and family I feel like I haven't said that in a while um, and also make sure that you um, you know give me a five-star review for my podcast so they can reach more people and again guys thank you thank you thank you thank you so much for supporting me like it's been four freaking years on this I'm almost at a half a million listens on my podcast which is super cool and just thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. You guys are amazing. Until next time, I'm going to continue giving you the best fitness advice out there. And you guys just fucking crush it. You guys are amazing. I love you all. Till next time. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Are we recording? Yes, we are. Um, cheers. <laughs> um... Welcome to the show, you guys, to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today, kind of for the first time, in a sense of, like, this is your first interview on my show, um, the one and only Angel Santos. Say hello. Hi, guys. <laughs> Happy to be here. Um... This show is going to be a really special one because, number one, we're drinking beer, um, which I've never done on a show, so that's pretty cool. And, yeah, and for those who don't know, am I recording this properly? Yes, I am. Okay. That looks weird. Ever since I updated my laptop, everything is a little bit different and it just looks off, but it's all good. Um... I think we're good. Anyway, um, for those who don't know, my wife and I are huge, huge fans of alcoholic beverages. Um, we kind of make it a, I would say a priority for every weekend to either have like a beer that we haven't had before, go to a brewery, try out some local craft beer, or, you know, try different imported beers from Europe to see what they're doing. And, you know, Germany kind of knows what they're doing with their beers. Mm -hmm. Or we kind of go down the path of, like, let's make some fancy drinks, like Manhattan's and Mai Tais and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of one of our hobbies. So we thought we would bring it to the show today. And I'm going to try not to talk as much as possible because... You're going to be the guest, the guest of honor on this mm -hmm. show. Um, we'll see how that works out. <laughs> um, to start things off, we're going to make this 
really easy for you. We'll do some like, I'm going to lob some questions okay. to make it easy. Um, what is the current TV show you're watching? You don't have to like say what we're watching. Cause just, like obviously. Just me by myself? Yeah. I am currently watching the latest season that they have on Netflix for Grey's Anatomy. It's just insane. The stories, like sometimes, like I, the reason I'm saying I'm rewatching, or it's because I had to stop because it's so crazy. But I don't know. I kind of like watching it. I like seeing people wearing their scrubs and doing their things. Tell people it makes me feel like that's like the next step for me, even though. That's gonna be completely different, and there's gonna be like no crazy, like airplane crashes or like buses driving into the, the emergency room where I'm gonna be working. Cause clearly that's not gonna be me. But it makes me feel like that can be something I can look forward to, kind of. So yeah. But it's funny, like that you brought that up, cause it's like, I can't remember if I was watching it with you or if I was just like, near you while watching it. But mm -hmm. I remember there was like. An episode where one of the main characters uh -huh. was like driving to the airport he saw a car accident tried to save the people in the car accident and then he got hit by another car or something yeah. like it just kind of kept going and i'm like okay yeah <laughs> so dramatic that's actually yeah that was one of the main characters that left yeah okay there but no go. spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched it um Another good question is, I usually ask what, you know, you're going to be doing this weekend, but we're kind of living the weekend. <clears throat> yeah. So let's maybe kind of backtrack of like what we did yesterday and what we did this morning that was super spontaneous that we yes. never do. Just to preface, Raph and I are really bad at being spontaneous. We try, but like I'm a really big planner. Raph has somewhat molded into that as well. And so whenever we try to be spontaneous, it never really works out. But yesterday, man, mm -hmm. yesterday was really good. Yeah. Why was it? Why do you think it was? Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was like, in the morning, we wa like I walked Misty, our dog, and like right on the front steps of our place, there was like a dead crow. And I think there's some sort of like superstitious. It was weird because when he told me that, I was like, "Oh my god, that is that like a bad omen? Like, are we just mm -hmm. gonna have bad luck all day?" But I, I, I guess it like reversed for us, and we tried to be spontaneous yesterday, and it worked out so well, so beautifully. Because we've had things where we're like, you know what, we need to be more spontaneous, let's go do this thing, and it never works out, and it's just like, let's just go home. Yeah, So, sad. tell us, tell the audience what we did yesterday. Well, yesterday, we had plans to go meet up with Raph's aunt and uncle, and we were going to go to this new uh, brewery out in, here in Langley. So we met up with them, and it just so happens that they were telling us that they have, they just recently purchased this like new like inflatable like paddleboard slash like kayak that they can use and we're like oh that's so cool and then I saw the opportunity I was like maybe one day we can like hang out and like hang, like do things with you and like bring our dog because like we've never had Missy out on the uh, out in the water we don't know what it's like and I like planted the seed and it worked <laughs> they were like yeah we should do it today and like, we did it and then at like 7 p.m. like right 
where the sunset was coming like we were out on the water like paddle boarding and I had Misty out on the water as well and she was scared but she was like but she liked it like she came back for a second time mm -hmm. and then we went out for Indian food after it was just perfect it was good and then like and this this morning oh. out of nowhere we were like thinking of well last night we were thinking about okay maybe we should get like kayaks <laughs> and paddle boards but we're like realistically how often would we oh, do know. it and like should we like quit while we were ahead with this whole like spontaneous yeah. thing um so we we're like oh maybe we should get bikes and then out of nowhere this morning we go yeah. and buy two mountain bikes so now we have mountain bikes so here we here we are here yep. we are but um, I, but we said we should we should quit while we're ahead we shouldn't push our luck. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I feel like we can talk about random stuff all the time. And I think what we need to get into, the reason why I brought you on the show is because you are now in your fourth year of naturopathic medicine. You're going to become a naturopathic doctor. Really soon. And for those people who do not live in BC or just in the West Coast, that know what a naturopathic doctor is, what they do, and all that fun jazz compared to like the East Coast and maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know, in the UK is probably not as popular. So we're gonna kind of backtrack to the moment that you finished your first undergrad and you were like, I wanna become a doctor, don't know which route I'm gonna go. So let's maybe start there of why you decided to go down the route of naturopathic medicine, boom. This is not really like I used to think that this was a heavy hitter question, but it isn't anymore. Like, bef yeah, I was definitely having to think and choose between going like the traditional allopathic medical medicine route, and I didn't even know about naturopathic medicine really because I, I didn't grow up with it at all. And so we had two our friends who graduated from there. I asked them about it, and I was like really intrigued because like it was naturopathic medicine. I was like, this is so different from what I know medicine to be. And so I just kind of did more research. Like I, I attended some of the like student for a day um, uh, sessions that they had at the school out in New West, and I just did I just did, read more and more and just kind of like fell into place like it just made sense as to what like how I would like to practice and how I'd like to treat people and it was kind of a no-brainer like it was a struggle figuring out like is this what I want to do like you know but once I got in there once I signed up it everything just fell into pieces and it was great yeah I, I think you're kind of selling yourself short <laughs> in a sense of like there was so much back and forth of like, oh, totally. do I want to become a medical doctor? Do I want to become a naturopathic yeah. doctor? And it was just like literally back and forth, back and forth. It was, like I said, it was a struggle, like going back and forth. I, at one point early in my like decision making, I was like, you know what? Okay. And this might sound really vain, but like people don't know, maybe people don't know what a naturopathic doctor is. And maybe I'll be like, maybe I should just go become like a, a regular medical doctor I'll just do it. Uh, I, I was like, I'll study for MCATs, do what I need to do. But it didn't really feel right. It didn't sit well with me. It was more just like, it's easier for people to understand, but it's just like, why am I thinking about what other people mm -hmm. care about or whatever? And so I was just like, yeah. 
But honestly, my favorite part of this telling the story was like when I took the student for a day, I attended um, a class, botanical medicine, and learning about some of the herb names, it was like, oh my god, this is like as if we were in Harry Potter and learning all of the herbs. <laughs> and like, it was so cool. And I was like, this has to be it. So it was like small little moments like that where I was like, this is, this is awesome. This is so cool. And like, yeah, it just made sense. Yeah. So I'm going to shelf that Harry Potter thing because we're both huge geeks on that. But I wanted to bring up what you said was like, you almost chose the harder direction because you knew that a lot of people wouldn't know what it is. Yeah. It's not really the traditional route because a lot of people where, you know, if they decide to go to the medical profession, it's kind of like, I'm going to become a doctor. Like that's like cream of the crop. Like that's what I'm going to do but you're also limited as a general practitioner of what you can do so you must challenge yourself even more because the naturopathic profession is always kind of like under fire like some people don't believe it's real whatever it is but you chose the harder route and i think for the audience listening or watching um we always have those situations where we're at a crossroads of like what path do I choose? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people kind of look at, okay, what's going to be the easiest route for me? Because like, you know, if you went with a medical doctor, became a general practitioner, you can literally just walk into a full load of patients, make tons of money, boom, done. But as a naturopathic doctor, you literally are a practitioner, like a physio or a chiro, where you basically have to learn how to build a business, yeah. build your own patient load, market yourself, x y and z like there's a lot more to it and i think a lot of people tend to like when they get to that crossroads they want to like go on the easier route and then eventually figure out that you know if i actually went with my initial thought Mm -hmm. and like intuition i'd be a lot more happier Mm -hmm. and like again we're gonna try to bring this all together full circle of like why this is related to health but i think when it comes to career stuff a lot of people always kind of look for comfort, but we don't grow as human beings unless we're a little bit uncomfortable yes. and getting out of our comfort zone. But I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't but you think... know what, honestly, like that's really funny because um, before I even decided I wanted to become a doctor, do you remember we had, like I had a sit down with you and I was like, what am I going to do? Like mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm in the middle of my undergrad. Like I had an idea of like, okay, I, w- I want to be a teacher, but like it wasn't quite enough. And we had a conversation, and I was like, well, you were like, you asked me, well, what do you really want to do? I was like, whatever. I want to be a doctor, because that's, that's awesome. That's, that, like, that's the best thing that I can do. But I'm not, I'm not, I can't be a doctor. I'm not smart enough. I can't do it. It takes too long to do it. I'm, I'm already like, I don't even remember what age I was. I was like, I'm too old to start now, and I'll be too old by the time I finished. And what are we going to have? You know what I mean? Like, those are yeah. the things that, that came up, but then... I really appreciate because you kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone because I was like, oh, I'll just be a, I'll just be a teacher. It should be fine. I'll just do this. And like, while that would have been a fulfilling career, it's it's almost like I would have settled. Mm-hmm. And like, you're the one that pushed me out of that comfort zone. You're like, yeah, you just do it, just do it. And so I have to thank you on it. I don't know if we've actually, I think we've had this conversation before, but. Mm-hmm. 
I, I credit all of this to you pushing me out, <laughs> honestly, pushing me out of my comfort zone because I am really the girl to sit in my comfort zone. I really like the things that I like. I like the things that I know. And you're the one that was like, you should try this. And I did. And yeah. look at where I am. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people are kind of like that. It's like if they don't have somebody influencing them to kind of get out of their comfort zone they're gonna just stay complacent or whatever it is mm -hmm. but I've seen like even my industry where people will be in the same career for 20 years absolutely hate it and out of nowhere they're like you know what I go to the gym every day I love training I love like meeting people at the gym I'm gonna become a trainer they go through full 360 well 180 to flip around <laughs> um and just change careers out of nowhere and like worst case scenario like if you have such a, like a lofty goal that's so high up there like go for it because the worst that happens is like you don't make it and realize maybe i'm not cut out for it but then you at least don't live with like what if i decided to do that what yeah. if and i literally had this conversation with somebody a couple days ago trying to figure out what they want to do with the rest of their life and they were kind of like leaning towards the easier route but i'm like say you go down that easier route and you're there you accomplish whatever it is but now you always have in the back of your head like what if i decided to do the harder route right so yeah i don't know i don't know you need friction in yeah your life. yeah 100 totally. um next question is going to be like for a lot of people, because I have people all over the world listening to my podcast, where maybe naturopathic medicine is not that mm -hmm. known. So maybe kind of give the Cliff Notes version of like, what is naturopathic medicine? Mm, this is a heavy hitter one for sure. Naturopathic medicine, well, how I see it, because I have to look at it from my point of view, right? Is it gives people so many different options on how to work with their bodies and, and promote their health because and again it, and I hate that it always compares to like a naturopathic doctor versus a, like an allopathic medical doctor but it kind of like but that that's what people know right so if you look at if you compare the two they're the same but like a general practitioner they're the same, but we just have more tools that we can use. We have botanical medicine using herbs, which is kind of similar to what Big Pharma uses for their synthetic medicine or drug prescriptions anyway. So we use herbs that are natural, but that doesn't mean that it's, like, it's safe. It's, it can still be toxic and stuff like that. So we, we learn about that. So there's botanical medicine. We have traditional Chinese medicine, which is like, we, it's just like a whole nother thing. We just like us as naturopathic med uh, doctors, like we know just the tip of the iceberg of traditional Chinese medicine. We know acupuncture, we can do moxa, cupping, we can do like some like diagnosis, like of the like different like organ systems and the meridians, but like, oh my gosh, that's just a whole nother thing. And so it, which is really cool and something that I would like to learn more about like pulse diagnosis tongue diagnosis like those are so cool but like we just need like, it just takes time and practice and so it's something that we are continually learning even now that I'm a clinician but um, so yeah we have traditional Chinese medicine that we have in our arsenal we have 
um, naturopathic manipulation, which is basically like being a chiro, like all those mobilizations and adjustments that we learn. We have nutrition, which is kind of like our the, what we're mainly known for. Um, we can use, what else? I mean, we have counseling, which is also amazing. Like we have the, the time to be able to sit with our patients and like sometimes you don't you don't need to just give them like something to treat. Like their symptoms, it's more just like do you need to talk? Like get it out there. And sometimes half of it is that it's just emo mental emotional stuff that needs to be let out. And so that's why I think like, that's why I was, I fell in love with naturopathic medicine. It's like, we have so many options that we can give our patients other than just, you know, giving them the smallest thing. Like, I mean, this is the worst example and I hate to do this because it's, it, that's not all like that general practitioners do. Like, they don't just give prescription, but sometimes they're limited to that. Like that's because mm -hmm. they only have the small amount of time to see their patients and they, they hear what the symptom is and they just give that. Whereas like, we have a little bit more time and we want to figure out what is causing the symptom versus how can we get rid of the symptom? Because that's not it. That's just a bandaid. We want to fix. We want to help. We don't cure because we don't cure. Your body can do that. We just help the body and we just nudge it along to help cure like like figure it out itself like and it can do that so that's that's why it's so cool like honestly i can talk all about it and it's like all the things that we can do it's just so many cool things. it's just cool <laughs> I, I think it's i'm like i nerd out about it it's just like it's so cool what we all the all the small things small and big things that we can do yeah it's amazing there's so many options so that's like, I'm really happy that you kind of brought up all the little different things that you're able to do because a lot of times, even when I chat with my clients and patients of like what you're learning in school, they have no idea that, you know, naturopathic um, students get to learn those things. Mm -hmm. So like you brought up like naturopathic manipulations, like Cairo adjustments, like yeah. most people don't know that you can do that. At least here in BC, I don't know if yeah. other provinces or other states or wherever yeah. NND works, but like for the longest time when you were learning them, like our coffee table was a Cairo table and it's like, <laughs> let's practice over and over again. And like, that's freaking cool. Yeah. But most like at least NDs here in this area don't really use that skill set, but it's like, you know, you can find an ND that does that and you know you get some musculoskeletal yeah. treatment and you know that's pretty freaking cool that you get to learn that and like acupuncture like that's pretty cool to be able to do that and again i've been a guinea pig it's <laughs> good and bad at the same time like good. it is good but um maybe let's talk about a little bit about what kind of acupuncture you do because like again on my show we've talked about ims traditional chinese medicine acupuncture but like maybe talk about the difference between ims and to be really honest with you i don't know what ims from my understanding from what we learn ims is similar mm -hmm. to what we do but i haven't gone that route of like f finding the differences but like for us what we learn we learn about the different organ systems so like for example we have like the TCM uh, traditional Chinese medicine like lung organ and that is correspondent with a meridian and so if we want if we if we find that 
And each meridian and each point in the meridian, because there's so many, there's like over 300 points. Each point can be like, it could be a local point. So like if, if there's a point like, for, for example, the easiest, the very first um, one that we learned is large intestine 11. And that's the first point that we needled, which is in the corner and the elbow. And it's like, okay, well, you can use that point if you have like, just locally, you know, if you have elbow pain, whatever. But then you can also use that point to clear heat in the body, which is like, that doesn't make that, like, if I said that to you, you'd be like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, yeah. But like, it's just, it's, it has all these different meanings. And then you look at, based on that meridian, you look at the actual organ, the organ, what is it? Um, what is the job of that organ? And say, if you talk about like large intestine, uh, the TCM large intestine, it's, it's, it's the organ that is in charge of letting go. So if you, if you have a lot of things that are built up or like, you know, like emotionally, mentally, even like physically, use that point, maybe not specifically that point, but like if you target points along that meridian, that'll help you to let go, whatever that means to you. And like, doesn't that sound kind of crazy, but it's also so cool and you just dive more into it. And anyway, <laughs> but, <laughs> But well, like what I'm trying to say is like it's not just like okay. From my understanding, IMS you target a muscle and you like stimulate that muscle. Mm -hmm. We can do that too. Like there are points in large muscle, um, large muscles in the body that you can trigger um, specific points. You don't even need to follow the meridian. You can just do ashi points where just like you feel around and you ask the patient like, hey, is this like tender there? And they say yes, and that's where you needle. So it's kind of like a trigger point as well. So like it, there's a, a very big overlap, but I think it's more just like philosophically, what does it mean? That's what's different. Yeah. But I, again, I didn't, I've never looked into IMS, which I am curious about it because it is, it sounds very similar, but yeah. we target meridian points uh, versus IMS is just, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the one thing I wanted to get into is like the, I guess, energy component of acupuncture mm -hmm. and how that relates to where the meridians lie and things like that but again like correct me if i'm wrong like the yin yin and yang type of thing but there's a different way to pronounce it properly yeah. than like westerners do yin and yang there you go yeah. um but i did have someone on my show and i feel totally bad that i can't remember his name but I literally probably interviewed him three years ago. And he's one of those people where I think he has like two PhDs, a couple master degrees. And he's one of those people that kind of looks at all these different things related to our health and sees if they actually work. And he went on this like rabbit hole of like, okay, TCM, meridian lines, like, is it bullshit? What, what's going on there? And he found a device where we'll pick up like electrical like currents and things like that. And he did like a little self experiment with other people and things like that, where they would follow the traditional like TCM um, meridian lines with this device that will basically have like a needle where it'll stay at zero if there's no like electrical current. And then the moment it hits it, it's like, Ooh, out of nowhere and every time they went over a meridian of every like tcm point it just like the needle like skipped like crazy and he was like 
All right, so I guess we're like onto something, which is like pretty cool because yeah. like I think that whole like traditional Chinese medicine is mm-hmm. based more on like energy stuff. Totally, it is energy yeah. healing. Whereas like in the Western medicine, it's like that's kind of woo woo for me. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. For me, like woo woo is like there has to be a reason why it's it's been going on for thousands of years. Yeah, and it's been helping all these people. So, like, yeah, sure, it's woo woo to you and people are all about like you know evidence-based and all that stuff and there's no research but sometimes it's like well if you look at someone and you do this and it helps them that's your proof right there if somebody feels better from a treatment i'm not going to be like well research said that it doesn't actually help you but so you're lying or i don't know what it is but like you know what i mean like so the whole the whole thing is helping people yeah and if it helps them yeah. That's the most important thing. Yeah, it's like when people that I train, at least, like, I get them to foam roll every time they come see me. And when people ask, like, what is it doing? And I'm like, honestly, it's not actually doing that much. But you get a response of, like, ooh, that thing is tight. And it feels pretty good going on it. Oh, shit, this is really tight and this is painful. But we do something to our nervous system yeah. where it creates like a change. And I always tell like clients that if you find something that makes you feel better, like keep doing it. Like even if research doesn't like support it. And I've had this like, cause like at my clinic we do cupping all the time and it works so well on nerves being entrapped mm-hmm. or like whatever the case is, low back pain, amazing. And I remember doing a post like a couple of years ago, like when I first got certified in cupping and I'm like, here's what we do in the clinic. And I literally had like an argument with a dude online saying that it actually doesn't work, not supported by research, blah, blah, blah. And it was like a back and forth. And I'm like, this guy's not going to back down. So I'm like, you know, thanks for contributing to the thing. But at the end of the day, if something makes someone feel better and they have like crippling chronic low back pain and they put a, we put a cup on them. And they're like, wow, I feel so good. And like the whole week is great. And I'm like, why would I want them to stop doing that? Like, you know, but I don't know, that's our world today. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge issue. It's just like evidence-based versus, there's a lot of things that you can't really do research Mm -hmm. on. Yeah. But the other thing I wanted to get into that I think most people don't know that NDs can do is like injection therapies mm-hmm. and that's like a whole nother thing that you kind of haven't dove into no. but like at least here in BC because again everywhere else is a little bit different like you could get to a point where you're doing prolo injections PRP even Botox mm-hmm. even filler mm-hmm. even IV therapy so maybe chat about like those options like I look really forward to like you being able to do IVs because like I've had IVs in the past and I felt amazing mm-hmm. after, but I don't know, let's maybe start with IV therapy yeah. and kind of go from there. Um, IV therapy, I mean, we, we can do them in clinic. We, we were certified in school, but to be able to do them outside of the school, we still have to do several other courses to do it. But I mean, the most well-known IV therapy is uh, the mini Myers which we were just like practicing on each other and I was like I loved doing it <laughs> like I loved getting it 
um, but my partner had a hard time getting a vein so sometimes I didn't get it so but it's really it was really fun and so you have like the Myers cocktail which is like magnesium calcium B vitamins and it's just like a, an amazing thing that just boosts your energy and there's other combinations now we are learning about the different um, um, ingredients that you can add in but we have but, but to be honest I had we haven't gone into it yet because just we're still learning about it and so like so far we can do IV therapy um, and usually Myers is the Myers cocktail is just for kind of like boosting energy or boosting the immune system it's very general but most people are pretty deficient in most of these <laughs> minerals um, yeah so you got like the B vitamins I mean unless you're not taking a complex like a B complex like you're pretty deficient especially if you're not eating the vegetables that most people I mean most people are now but like there's still people who are like yeah McDonald's is the only thing I'm gonna eat and so like those people would be really they would benefit from having a Myers cocktail and you know the vitamin C and magnesium and calcium like those are great for you and again it could be lacking and especially magnesium people need magnesium so much so yeah, I love IVs I'm sorry I don't remember what your question was me either but <laughs> Like, I already realized that we're already past 30 minutes and we wanted to keep it under 30, but maybe one of the last questions yeah. would be, when should someone see a naturopathic doctor? Before they start feeling something. I would say, if you want to optimize your health, do it before you start feeling symptoms. But most people don't do that, right? Yeah. People will go to see a doctor when not even right away when they start feeling something. It's more just like, oh, I've had this thing for six months. I thought maybe you should see it. But so like, while, while that's fine, that's great that you came in, it's better if you come in and optimize your health before. But again, not realistic, not everyone can do that. Um, you know, if you have some, I mean, we can treat acute, any acute issues we can help with, but we are really good at chronic stuff. Things that are like long lasting, um, things that you're like, what is this? I don't know what it is. I went to my medical doctor. They don't know what it is. They just kind of brush it off saying it'll be fine or it'll go away on its own, but it hasn't gone away. That's what we're really good at. I feel like we're like detectives and we will continually like look at every aspect of your life to figure out what is causing that one thing. Or maybe not even one thing, like several things that's causing this, these symptoms coming up for you. So yeah. Come in before you have issues, but even if you, even if it's after, I mean, it's like, we can see you for anything. Yeah. It's kind of like when we get people in the clinic to see our chiros where it's like, my back is so fucked, I can't move, fix it. And then like, after a couple of treatments, like, I still feel pain. Why isn't this working? It's like, well, you could probably have come in like beforehand to kind of like get some maintenance done, get some tissue change maybe start exercising like those things can like prevent your entire back from exploding by picking up your sock and now you can't breathe and you're on the floor so i kind of look at it the same way as like a naturopathic doctor is like let's prevent you from getting like terrible heart disease or whatever it is yeah. like it's preventative medicine and like like you said if even if it gets pretty bad like there's other options yes. other than constantly taking 
drugs or surgeries or whatever it is and that's just like my profession like my hip hurts all the time I'm gonna go get a hip replacement it's like well let's like <laughs> yeah. let's like work on other things before we get to that yes. point but uh maybe for the last question if people wanted to find you online because I know you're on social media I am <laughs> I kind of feel a little bit embarrassed but so I started off so I'm in my fourth year now when I, in my first year, when I first started, I was like, I'm going to document every single thing, every single day that I'm in school, what I learned that day, or like the most important thing that I learned that day. And I did that up until second year. And even the last like month of second year was, it was hard to get it through because it got harder and harder, of course. But um, yeah, so I, I'm, I've documented all of my second year like every day up up to my second year and then for my third year I'll just kind of wrap up like quick big things that I learned but yeah so you can find me at nd student santos I almost <laughs> forgot <laughs> nd student santos um on instagram awesome. that is my that's my baby that I kind of neglected but I will be but I will be taking the summer to kind of revamp it because I have a little bit more time now thank god but yeah Awesome. So thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and drink beer and answer random questions that I decided to ask you. Um, That's it for this week's episode. I haven't had a guest on my show for a while. This was awesome. So thank you, thank you, thank you. This was amazing. And let's cut it there. See ya. What's up, my podcast listeners? Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski. And we are getting really, really close to my 400th episode. Fuck. That is crazy to me to think that I will be at that milestone really, really, really soon. Um, And now I recently just got uh, a brand new listener that reached out to me saying like, oh, I just like started listening to your first episode and honestly, that first episode is so bad, so bad. I was so nervous, and I apologize for anyone brand new listening to my show that went that far back to listen to my first episode. I promise it gets better. I promise. Um, so before I get started today, we got to do some shout-outs, because I am quite popular in the state of Texas right now. Uh, my first top three cities are all in Texas. So first city in Texas is Dallas. And then we have El Paso and Plano. Plano, Plano, hopefully I said that correctly. But yeah, three cities in Texas. Shout out to everyone in Texas listening to my show. And number four, I believe this might be the first time this country's ever been on my top 10. Uh, I'm pretty sure they popped on like top 20 at least, but um, I'm gonna gonna butcher this city's name, but here hero go word out of the netherlands i'm sorry um yeah i'm totally terrible at pronouncing other cities from outside of canada and the states so i apologize um but yeah shout out to everyone in the netherlands listening to my show super super cool all right so i'm gonna close this up Topic for today, we are going to talk about foot 
and toe mobility and health and strength and all that fun stuff because um, one, I did get a request to do this and two, literally right before I just, um, what's it called, uh, started recording this, I posted a entire toe activation mobility series that I'm going to go over in this uh, video and also kind of talk about the importance of having adequate control over feet. So if you look at um, the design of our hands and feet, they're very, very identical, very, very, very similar. Um, even bone structure, I believe I can have this mixed up and I think I said this on my show before that it's either our hands or our foot. Um, one of them has 26 um, bones and the other one has 27. So they're very, very identical. So when it comes to these two joints in particular, um, they showcase a lot of similar traits, but the only difference is, is that we have our feet constantly covered by um, our socks and shoes almost all day. And if you're the typical person when they come home, they don't typically go barefoot. They're in like slippers and socks or whatever else thing that you wear at home. And it's a shame because we are, you know, Dr. Andrew Spina would always say this, basically putting little casts on our feet and you expect your feet to react the way that they're designed when you do something active. Um, especially something like running that requires all those small little intricate muscles in the foot to function the way that they're designed. So imagine you taking your hands and putting like mittens on them and then trying to go on your iPhone and try to like swipe left, right and text it. You wouldn't really get that far and you don't have that tactile touch, right? So our hands, like our hands exposed to our daily environment gets a lot of good feedback and you know, it can adapt to that feedback. Our feet don't really get that. And, you know, this whole um, topic of foot health and foot strengthening really will come down from the work of, um, I always butcher her last name and I've had her on my show, Dr. Emily Spickle. I'm pretty sure Spickle. Um, she is literally the person that I've learned so much from. Um, I was first exposed to her at a conference probably now seven or eight years ago and it just blew my mind how much she knew about the foot and she's actually um, a surgeon by trade. So she actually knows a lot about the foot um, when it comes to the surgery side, but then she also realized that every time she did a surgery to like say fix a bunion or some other foot thing, um, she actually made the patient a lot worse down the road, um, than actually better. And, you know, this whole idea of surgery, um, when it comes from like a biomechanical standpoint, again, this is my opinion and the opinions that I've heard from other fitness professionals that are more so on the rehab, rehab side, I can't speak today, um, that have seen patients post-op when it comes to these things and they all kind of said the same thing is like, you know, a surgeon kind of looks at a problem like, okay, my door 
is not closing. I'm gonna shave off the door and now it closes. Whereas like a exercise physiologist, a physiotherapist, chiropractor that works with patients post-op or pre-op, whatever it is, they don't look at like, oh, the door's not closing I'm gonna, and they wanna shave it off. I'm gonna look at the hinges, maybe there's something wrong there and let's fix that problem instead, right? And a lot of times surgery on these kind of things will lead to some improvement um, from like a pain standpoint of like, say your pain out of 10 is a seven and you get surgery and now you're down to a five, but it's still there, right? It doesn't really take away the problem. And then say 10 years down the road, you're kind of back to square one and things are kind of worse. And maybe something else is bucking you now. And the foot is kind of one of those things. So, you know, say you've been walking in a certain gait for your entire life and now you have to get some sort of surgery on your foot because x y and z let's just not get into the different things out there you get surgery for um and then you know pain goes away your foot's awesome but now you're getting like medial knee pain for some reason and then your hip and low back hurts for some reason all because of what happened down below in your foot or your toe whatever it is um, and that's what um, Dr. Emily Spickle, I'm just gonna call her Dr. Emily from now on because I don't wanna keep butchering her name if I'm doing it wrong. Um, that's what she re quickly realizes that she was actually making her patients worse with these traditional um, surgeries for the foot. And then she kind of ventured in like, okay, what are you know corrective exercises or a way to like rebuild the foot from the ground up? And um, she's now quite the educator in that realm. So I highly recommend you check her out or even go to the episode, um, what's it called, um, within my podcast. It would have been like two years from now, like from this date uh, that I had her on my show. And then I had another um, surgeon for ankles, feet and toes. Can't even remember his name now. Cause he actually reached out to me, which was pretty cool to have a surgeon reach out to me to get on a podcast. And he was really, really knowledgeable as well. Both are actually funny enough from New York. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. Um, so that being said, the people that are listening, um, there's going to be a large portion of this episode where I'm going to showcase my foot and all the exercises that you should be doing, but let's get a little bit back into, um, the, structure and function of the foot. So when you think about it, um, when you walk, there is a series of events that has to happen at the foot in order for you to propel yourself forward. So if you think of a heel strike going first, a little bit of uh, supination, meaning you're gonna go to the outer portion of your foot, and then you're going to pronate down towards the big toe and then you're going to push off the big toe to propel yourself forward. So it's almost like a heel out in down to push yourself over. Um, well, forward, sorry. And a lot of times when people don't have strong enough feet, they'll do weird things like they'll like overly pronate or overly supinate or, you know, they're flat footed, whatever it is. Um, and the big thing that people need to do is start training barefoot and start rebuilding their arch, rebuilding the small intrinsic muscles. And um, a guy way, way, way before his time um, named Vladimir Yonda, who was a physiotherapist probably back, 
want to say in the 50s or 60s, um, coined and created, I believe, this is how far back as I could find, um, an exercise called short foot that would help rebuild the arch. And, you know, a lot of people out there will utilize this or they've heard it and a lot of physios, chiros use it too. And it's such a small little, little movement to rebuild. And like, I'm a type of person that like, if there's a training concept, rehab concept, whatever it is, I want to go back to the source. I don't want to go to the person that's just re-irritating the information because sometimes, you know, their take on it might be a little bit different from what the original person, you know, designed that for. And um, sometimes just the, the language or how they describe it from the very beginning kind of gives you a little bit more um, context and you'll understand it. So when you think about um, going back to the source, it's literally kind of like the best way to understand a concept because a lot of times when people reiterate a, a message it's kind of um, lost or kind of diluted a little bit but long story short uh, Vladimir was way beyond his time he understood the body quite quite well and now you see a lot of physios and chiros utilizing his methods and principles and things like that when it comes to understanding the body so it's super cool when you kind of go down that rabbit hole but anyway um that being said um <clears throat> maybe we should actually start going into these exercises so i'm going to tilt this guy down so you can see my foot so short foot if you look at my foot the idea is to get this arch activated so the big toe that's on the ground, you want to think of literally shoving it into this big joint. So you're kind of, you want to think of pulling like this, but this joint right here that's popping off the ground, like I can put my finger under it, should stick to the ground as hard as possible. So I'm literally just pulling in and down, pulling in and down. So when you see my next pull, you already see that arch activating and relax, pull, relax. It's a small, small little movement. And a lot of people have trouble trying to figure out how to do that without like curling their foot in like this. And what's funny about um, this little exercise, this little short foot that I'm doing over and over again, it's a small little, little thing, but if you put your fingers like on your arch underneath here and you start doing that, you can feel the small little intrinsic muscles um, contract. And the funny thing is like, if you are a kettlebell person and you start doing swings, or if you watch someone doing swings barefoot and you watch their arch, every time they drive the kettlebell back and as they get to the top of their swing and they snap their hips, you see their arch literally fire up to root themselves into the ground. And I would classify a kettlebell swing as a way to build up your arch. And there's a reason why um, people in the kettlebell world utilize um, barefoot training, right? So um, it builds strong feet and people miss that mark a lot. And we just need more stimulation of that foot. Um, a lot of times when people try to, you know, go down the barefoot um, 
craze they kind of do too much too soon and then end up with more problems but if you look at um kind of the progression if someone were to start training barefoot like the easiest thing is like in your warm-up go barefoot right don't just go the entire hour now barefoot training because you're gonna fatigue those muscles you're gonna make them worse right it's kind of similar to like oh i want to start running you're not gonna go run a full marathon this weekend you're going to like build up to it same thing with um barefoot training right like you can overly strain you can do more damage than um do more harm than good right so short foot is kind of the first um progression i get people doing when trying to rebuild their arch it's that small little pull um that is a great starting point but then the other aspect to it like depending on what you're dealing with is um, just doing some soft tissue work because sometimes uh, what I find with people's feet is they're, they're very 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 stiff and we haven't even really got up to the chain of like the ankle itself but the bottom of your foot and I'm literally showing my foot to the camera like there's a lot of fascia and soft tissue in there before it gets into the bone like it's thick it's really 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 thick and in order for that to stuff to loosen up one you have to add some like movement for it to kind of reinforce to the nervous system that that particular said tissue needs to move right it's the said principle right it's, it adapts to a specific stress so if i'm stressing my feet to move outside of their normal of being in a sock and shoe all day then the little muscle cells that are in there that are responsible for movement um, are going to adapt to that stress so that being said um literally getting a lacrosse ball tennis ball uh, golf ball at the bottom of the foot just to start moving um, that tissue will help um, if you went through like a standpoint of like rehab like depending on how bad your feet are you can get rock taped you can get kinesio taped same thing um, cupping can be done you can do some instrument assisted and you can literally get some like soft tissue work from a manual therapist to kind of move the process a little faster but if you're not going down that route then you have your short foot you have your soft tissue and we're going to get into the other exercises right now as well i'm going to tilt this camera down now if you look at my foot that's super white <laughs> sorry sorry people at home i'm blinding you right now in my kin stretch class i do this every single time and actually another thing to note if you look at my foot there is a huge gap between my big toe and my rest of my toes and that is a good in, in, um, inclination of uh, balance so if you look at um, chimpanzees for example or just monkeys in general their feet are literally like my hand so where my thumb is and where my fingers are there's a huge separation and that allows them to spread out more to have more of a base of support so then it can literally wrap around a branch and now they have really really good balance and stability right a lot of times people's feet um the big toe is kind of like smushed in like this against their other toe and then you'll see already like this big knuckle here a lot of people will get that bunny informed because they're wearing shoes that literally goes into this like triangle position and just scrunches up the feet together like this and 
over time, like again, our body adapts to the stress you put on it. So if I'm wearing a shoe like this, that's cut, crushing my fingers together and think about what I was just saying about how uh, a step happens. You go on your heel, you're supposed to go down, out to the side, into the, um, into pronation and then the big toe pushes off for propulsion, right? So if I have this all crumbed together like this, the only really way to do it, like it's, it's really awkward to do it with my hands though, um, heel out and then pronate. So if I'm pronating with this kind of position of my toe in the shoe, like this is gonna take up a lot of stress and your body's gonna build more calcium around that to protect that joint. And then boom, you formed a bunion and eventually that's gonna get super um, pain, uh, painful. But if you train your feet and you wear proper footwear, you're gonna end up with space in between to give you more balance. If you look at gymnasts, they have the same um, same foot setup or someone like in Cirque du Soleil, they have really good balance because they have good separation between the toe. But for the most part, everyone's big toe is kind of crushed like this and then bunion forms. And that's really hard to do the exercises I'm about to show you if you're used to this like eight to 12 hours a day, right? So in my kin stretch class, the simplest thing that I get people to do is like, okay, we're gonna lift our big toe up while the rest stay on the ground and back down. And it's literally just this one big toe going down and up, down and up, down and up. And you'd be surprised how many people can't do this lifting just their big toe while the rest stay down and back down, right? So right away, when I see people not able to do this, I already know that their gait must be messed up because they can't actively control that big toe. Um, and like, if you think about it from the side view, that big toe, like look at how much activation I'm getting into my arch. Like that's a lot. And if that big toe can't move freely, then this arch is not gonna be working the way it should. Um, and now another variation from that is that the big toe stays up while the rest come up and back down, up, back down, up, back down. A lot of people have trouble moving the rest of their digits independently from that big toe. A lot of times when I see this, they bring up all their toes, but I physically want people to keep that big toe down and keep the rest of the toes going down and up down and up right from there my next progression is all the toes come up towards the ceiling and just the big toe goes down and then back up just the big toe goes down back up and then the next progression is all the toes again up towards the ceiling but the rest of the digits so like the pinky toe to that uh, toe right beside the big toe go down to the ground and back up down to the ground back up now our feet should be pretty dexterous and like the next progression that I work on quite a bit is having all the toes up and aiming for one toe to go to the ground at a time. Kind of like if I was on a piano with my toes, I'm trying to go pinky, next toe, the next toe, the next toe and the big toe go last. Now, these movements or exercises should be quite simple for our feet, but you know, seeing this in action um, in my class, not a lot of people can do it. And some people can do one out of four and the rest are just terrible. They have a lot of, a lot of trouble doing that. So now imagine 
if you don't have full control of your feet, they're kind of just there. They're not really doing anything for you. So now when it comes to any kind of stabilization on one leg, meaning single leg deadlifts, lunges, step ups, any single leg exercise, even think of deadlifts and um, squats, anything two-legged, running, walking, all those activities of your lower extremities are required to have full functioning feet and toe, uh, mobility, activation, everything. So if that's not working, something up the chain is going to compensate for it, aka your ankle, your knee, your hip, your low back, right? And a lot of times people will have those issues where like their knee hurts and they can't figure out why and blah, blah, blah. And sometimes it comes down to their feet, right? And um, we haven't really talked about the ankle because the ankle also influences a lot of movement too. So the big thing um, with having adequate feet is also that ankle. So we're going to get into ankles a little bit. So remember how I was talking about how the bottom of your foot has a lot of uh, fascia and soft tissue and it can get really really stiff most likely if that bottom of the foot is super stiff the ankle is super super stiff too so um, I'm gonna tilt this camera down and we can talk about ankle mobility so if you look at my foot man my feet are so white and pale I'm like Casper the friendly ghost here um, the ankle itself you need adequate I'm gonna tilt this up a little bit Adequate dorsiflexion, meaning I should be able to drive my knee as far forward as possible without my heel popping up in order for me to like squat, lunge, and things like that, walk, run, sprint adequately. But a lot of times if people have toe mobility issues, activation, the bottom of the foot is super tight, then all the fascia that comes in the back here and in the front that wraps around, it's also gonna be tight. So a lot of times when I check people's feet their ankle mobility is also super, super tight. So when I check dorsiflexion, it gets kind of stuck here. And most of those people will have some sort of deficiency when it comes to running, walking, whatever. So now I know that if I can fix the foot, it'll influence the ankle. If I influence the ankle, it's gonna influence the foot. It's kind of like a yin and yang type of situation here. Um, so sometimes all it is is just working on ankle mobility exercises, ankle cars, um, pails and rails in this uh, situation, rolling the crap out of like the soleus and gastroc of the back because sometimes the calf is super tight. I think for the most part, a lot of uh, people's calves are super tight and they need a lot of work. So sometimes it's just a soft tissue thing and more of like a neuromuscular control thing because sometimes when people do um, those toe exercises I showed earlier in my class, sometimes it's like they they can't connect their brain to their feet and it's just kind of like waking shit up again. And that's why those little exercises work tenfold. And I've seen the progression because I've been doing kin stretch um, at our gym for close to a year now. And the people that have been really um, religious about it are now seeing the benefits. And I think it's those small little things that add up over time and are, it's always the small things that people overlook. And it goes to show just like anything in life, if you continually do the small things, they'll add up over time to a big thing, right? So I'm gonna leave it at that. That's a lot of information. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. 
start doing your toe intrinsics. That's what they're called, toe intrinsic exercises. It's gonna help a lot and it might come in handy, you know? Next time you drop a pencil, pen, whatever, you pick it up with your feet. It'll be like that episode in the office when Dwight was trying to practice 10 minutes a day with his feet to do everyday items and then spilt all the coffee on him. But uh, let me know if you have any questions. Feel free to reach out, hit the show notes. If you're listening, hit the show notes to watch the video because there's a lot of um, good demos and um, or do the cliff notes cheat where you go to my uh, post about the toes and it'll help a lot. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you guys. Show notes again, add me on Facebook and Instagram. I post a lot of video and photo stuff. I love you guys. Until next time. What's up podcast listeners? This is your host, Profound Matuszewski for another edition of the podcast and video thing that I've been doing and posting on my YouTube and shout out to everyone who's been listening and subscribing. And once again, I'm going to say it over and over again. If you are listening, 100% hit the show notes and watch this video because it's going to be um, quite visual and I'm gonna do some demos and also some exercise selection things that you can do at home before your workouts and your warmups, whatever it is and uh, also subscribe. Um, so we're gonna do some shout outs because I always tend to forget and hopefully my laptop works here. Um, so 100% I am going to butcher this name and I feel terrible, but I am one of those people that can't pronounce things apparently. Um, so really cool, the last 24 hours, um, this one city out in Mexico has been listening to my show 441 times. Oh, here I go. Tuxtla Gutierrez. 100% butchered that. I apologize. So anyone from Mexico, please reach out and let me know how to pronounce it correctly. And I've done that one more t uh, once before. It was like a city out in Sweden or someone and someone actually on my Facebook reached out and just sent like a little voice clip and memo of how to pronounce it. So shout out to that person who did that like, I don't know, a year ago. Um, and then my number two most listened city all the way in Colorado, the city of Boulder. And number three, all the way in California, the city of San Francisco. So, funny enough that San Fran is my third most listened city because literally a year ago today, I was in San Fran for my functional release seminar and it was literally the last conference thing that I've went to where you actually got to travel. And it's kind of surreal that this whole pandemic now is like reaching its one year milestone for many of us when it comes to looking back a year ago today. But anyway, onwards and upwards, as they say, um, what we're going to talk about today is knee pain, because honestly, I think as much as everyone would like to think that, you know, they've done a good job trying to stay pain-free. We've all kind of experienced either some serious knee pain or just some knee pain that is annoying and you've had to modify a lot of exercises and things like that. And I want to get into kind of like the anatomy of it, why it matters, um, common reasons why people get knee pain, and 
kind of wrap it all up with some suggestions and some exercise prescription and things like that. And I think probably the biggest thing when it comes to knee pain is figuring out why, because most likely it's going to happen again. And I think a lot of us who've gone to either a physio, chiro, massage, whatever it is, a lot of times when it comes to knee pain, they tend to treat just the knee itself. And again, like that's a good thing to do to kind of lower inflammation and like, you know, the quality of the pain. So then when you leave the clinic, you can actually walk and not feel completely destroyed. But there's usually a, um, an underlying issue that's got to look on the bigger picture. So in my industry, or I don't even know where I stole this saying from, but um, the knee joint is considered the stupid joint because it's usually dictated by the hip and the ankle. So usually when I see a patient or I have a client dealing with knee pain, right away I'm looking at how um, the hip and ankle move and the surrounding musculature. And then I also look at the knee itself because the knee needs to be able to move and I'll kind of explain why. So um, this is where the laptop is gonna come super in handy. Because um, again, I'm a huge visual learner. And when it comes to anatomy, me just saying, you know, um, muscles doesn't really help anyone. And I feel like a lot of times when people are at, um, what's it called, uh, conferences or whatever, and people yell out a, not yell out, say out a muscle name and everyone's just supposed to know what that is. But um, just like last time, I'm really hoping that you guys will be able to see this. So this guy right here, well, you can see the ring light. Oh, there you go. That looks better. Um, so this is the sartorius muscle. So if you can see, I'm trying to get the ring out of there. Ooh, my laptop is super dirty. But you can see how the red line is kind of focused on where the muscle is. You can kind of see where it attaches from the hip to the knee. And the interesting thing about the sartorius or the next muscles I'm going to be kind of talking about is that the fact that they cross two joints. So it already shows how much influence now that this hip that may not be working the way it should um, is influencing the knee. So we already have one muscle that we're going to be talking about and some other ones down the line about how it influences our movement, right? Um, so if you think about one giant muscle literally running from your hip all the way down to your knee, we already have kind of a clue of where to go. So now I'm thinking, okay, what other, you know, muscle out there in the hip slash knee region would be also connected? So let's pull up the quadricep muscle. So again, stupid ring light. So the green, you can see how it's connected to our pelvis and then it goes all the way down to the knee. Another great example. And I think for most of us, you know, sitting at a desk all day, we can assume that those quads are quite tight. And if you are like anyone else out in the world, foam rolling, 
and you get to your quads, I think all of us go, oh shit, that's tight, ooh, that doesn't feel good. And then you wonder why a lot of people end up having hip pain. I mean, not hip pain, sorry, knee pain. Um, the other one that I wanna bring up as well is the muscle called the gracilis. So if you, again, you can see past my damn ring light. Pelvis, inside of the pelvis is basically an adductor. It goes across, again, inside towards the knee. So I've already brought up a bunch, well, three muscles so far, um, how they're connected to the knee. So now imagine those three muscles are not functioning the way they should. They might have some tightness, and that's in air quotes, and that's going to influence how the knee moves. So for example, if I know that my quads are super tight, and I'm trying to do an exercise like a reverse lunge, and I actually want to demo that. So I'm going to move this guy, and hopefully I don't mess anything up. So actually, I'm going to make this go a little bit lower. Thank you for bearing with me. So we are looking at my right leg. If I know that my quad goes from the hip down over towards my knee, and I know that these guys are super tight because I'm in this position all day. And I go into a reverse lunge and all of this is now being stretched. And I go down into that reverse lunge. I'm going to start feeling that tightness going all the way down from my hip down towards my knee. So if I allow my muscle to, again, air quotes, stay tight, things like reverse lunges, jogging, running, like anything that requires you to do hip extension is probably not going to be um, the best feeling. And that knee is going to kind of take on a lot of that pressure. Now, if we think about this atorius that goes from the hip across and then down into the inside of the knee, and we're also thinking about the gracilis that goes from the inside of our pelvis down into the inside of our knee, and we're trying to do, let's say, lateral lunges, lateral split squats, we're trying to play soccer and all these guys are tight and that allows our knee to flex and extend because it goes across this way. And this is one of the reasons why in my um, kin stretch class I do a lot of adductor work because people just have no control over it. So actually a simple um, exercise that I tend to give a lot in my kin stretch classes for um, this specific reason and I'm gonna try to get this nice and low so you guys can see so if I was in my 90-90 position with my left leg in front really simply all I get people to do in my kin stretch class is to demonstrate their active range when it comes to one hip flexion and um, adductor um, strength actively lifting it up off the ground. So essentially all I tell people to do is to think of getting their left ankle, in this case, to lift off the ground and hold. And isometrically hold it without like leaning back, caving in or anything like that to get these guys stronger. And as we get this guy moving and grooving a little bit better, adding knee extension and flexion, because again, like the thing like the satorius, the gracilis, they're all on the inside that cover our knee. Also our quad again goes from our hip down over onto our knee. So 
when it comes to the relation of these uh, muscles that I've covered to joints, it's probably quite important to also demonstrate not only um, what they can singularly do just at the knee, but also at the hip. So in this case, I'm adding hip flexion. And now if I wanted to challenge those three muscles, it's also adding some knee extension and flexion to really focus on getting all those muscles um, actively moving uh, through both joints. And anytime I throw this exercise or any other kind of variation, utilizing those adductors and hip flexors that um, cross both joints, people have a really, really, really tough time with them. So now that kind of gets my brain kind of thinking like, okay, if people are having trouble with that, just lifting their own leg off the ground, when it comes to running, playing soccer, doing lunges, step ups, back squats, deadlifts in the gym, something is going to have to give. And a lot of times it's the knee is going to take up the grunt of the work. And over time, it's kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. And now I have soreness around the knee and it might be most likely due to the hip. So other than the muscles that I've just kind of spoke about, there's other ones surrounding the knee that will um, influence how much movement you get. And it's usually all the muscles in your hip that focus on hip flexion. So hip flexion, again, if you don't remember from previous videos, is when I drive my leg up towards the ceiling, I'm doing hip flexion. So if you think about what we do on a daily basis and sit all day, all those hip flexors are gonna end up getting quite tight. And when we have those hip flexors quite tight, it's going to influence how the pelvis moves, right? So if I'm trying to do any, any exercise that requires my lower body, and if I don't have adequate hip mobility, again, the knee kind of takes the grunt of the work and it kind of sucks. So if you think about um, when I demos, demonstrated hip cars, it kind of goes through all the ranges that a healthy hip can do. So if you look here, how I coach hip cars, I also add adduction right off the bat. So kind of similar to what we did here in the 90-90, as I'm driving my leg up, I'm going into adduction and external rotation, coming out of it, rotating around and behind. So in a healthy hip, all these ranges should be available with any kind of compensation. So when I do hip cars, you don't see anything else in my body move other than my hip. So going back and forth, I'm demonstrating what a healthy hip can do. So now imagine, you know, the average Joe where they sit all day and those ranges are not available to them. Again, the knee kind of takes the brunt of the work or worse, also the low back. So usually if you find yourself in that pain category where you're trying to move and feel better, you usually have two, I would classify three things, but the most common ones are um, low back pain and knee pain. And then the third one usually is like shoulder pain, all due to what's happening at the hip, right? And if you think about it too, it's like the hip is designed to be a super, super mobile joint. The low back is supposed to be designed as a stable joint and the knee as well is supposed to be designed as a 
um, stable joints. So if I, you have one joint in the middle between those, it's almost like a sandwich. Um, that's not doing its job. Now the low back and the knee have to make up for the lack of mobility through the hip. So now that we kind of looked at all the stuff that influences the hip, now we also have another um, kind of player to the game when it comes to knee pain, which is our ankle. So if you think about um, your ankle, it has quite a bit of different um, abilities to do certain movements. So if you think about, again, if you're lunging, walking, playing soccer, running, doing CrossFit, whatever it is, your ankles need some adequate um, ankle mobility. And if you can remember, hopefully you can see, um, ankles can either go into plantar flexion, so me pushing my toes straight, or dorsiflexion, driving my toes up towards my knee. So like a simple ankle mobility exercise is just me driving my front knee forward and back and kind of going through the range of angle dorsiflexion. So now if you think about it, um, even how I'm sitting right now in a deep squat, one, I need hip mobility to do that, and two, I also need really, really good ankle mobility. If I don't have ankles that move um, adequately enough, just enough in order for me to squat, um, lunge, step up, whatever it is, again, that knee's gonna take up all the work. And if you remember earlier, um, our knee is a stable joint and it wants to stay stable, but if it doesn't have um, hip mobility and ankle mobility, it's like a double whammy and now you're dealing with a lot of shit. <laughs> um, so looking at ankle mobility, um, simple things that you can do. One, um, ankle cars to get some motion in there. And ankle cars, I've posted before, but I don't think I've ever brought it up on the show. So if I have my right leg in front and my left leg bent, left hand goes through, right hand holds left hand. And I start drawing big, 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 big circles with my foot. And what's interesting too, is when I bring this exercise in my Kim stretch classes, almost everyone is really good going here to plantar flexion or dorsiflexion. But when it comes to like going onto the inside or outside limits to kind of create that circle, it almost is like choppy and like it's not a smooth movement. Because when is the last time have you ever really moved your ankle to those kind of like, if you look at my hand being flat and that's your foot, going into a, you know, inversion or eversion position and adding like abduction and adduction movements like... I don't think we've ever really done it because we always walk straight and never into lateral positions to kind of develop that movement. So now when it comes to like squatting, lunging, things like that, if we already know that those outer limits going into inversion, eversion, we're not that, um, let's say, you know, adequate and moving in those ranges, again, that knee's going to track in weird places and that can cause some pain. So like knee tracking, if you look at my knee, when I want to lunge or anything like that, it should kind of fall in line where my foot is pointing. And a lot of times when people don't have adequate ankle dorsiflexion where I can go forward and like when I test ankle uh, mobility in 
my assessment, the biggest thing is I get people in this half kneel position and I just tell them, okay, to drive your knees far forward as possible over your toe. And people with really good mobility is just like, yeah, sure, no problem. But a lot of times, our body's really, really, really good at cheating movement. I always say this. And it's sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. So what I usually see, if I am in front of you, and I know I'm wearing all black and I should have worn different clothing, but a lot of times, if you look at my fingers, this is going to be to represent my knee. People start going forward and at your end range where your body goes, oh, you don't have enough ankle dorsiflexion, let me give it to you in a different way. So usually what happens, it comes forward and then the hip rotates out to give you more. So it's throwing you into almost internal rotation and that becomes like a movement behavior. So every time you're required to get enough ankle dorsiflexion, whole body goes into this position, kind of giving you a false sense of ankle dorsiflexion. And a lot of times that is something called a valgus collapse where the knee caves in. So if I was squatting, and I didn't have one adequate hip mobility or enough ankle dorsiflexion or mobility in general, stuff like this happens to get more depth. And just even a small little bit, because sometimes it's not both knees, it's usually just like the ones where I'm coming down in my squat and this will happen to get more. And over time, same, problem say I'm doing lunges split squats it's just like a small little thing where it constantly caves in and you know straw that breaks the camel's back and now it's like okay the inside of my knee is really hurting so kind of moving forward in the next bit that's one of the most common things is people get pain on the inside of their knee due to that valgus collapse because it's just a moving behavior that your body kind of learned to give you a false sense of mobility now the other uh, most common kind of painful spot for a lot of people is on the outside of the knee and again that goes back to adequate hip mobility enough ankle mobility and usually what causes that if you look at the anatomy of kind of the top of the quad and let's actually I think I have a good photo of that just hang on here we're learning together you know this is great So this guy totally stole it from a different website and you can see the copyright in the back. But um, if you look on this side right here, again, freaking ring light, and we look on the outside where we have our vastus lateralis muscle that kind of goes all underneath where the IT band is. And like, you know, everyone talks about like IT band syndrome. One, you rolling out your IT band over and over and over again is not going to fix um, your IT band syndrome. It's probably just going to lessen the intensity, but that band is designed to be super, super, super tight. Like you can, I can't remember the number, but they've done a bunch of research where, you know, in order to loosen that IT band, like you almost need like 2,000, 2,000 pounds of force per square inch to actually like loosen it up. So it's designed to be tight, but that doesn't mean that the muscles of your hip that run down to the outside of the knee, if the, all of these are super tight, then that's going to kind of pull on all this stuff and even lightly touching the outside of the knee is going to hurt. So again, we're looking at hip mobility that's 
preventing you from doing certain exercise, certain movements, they'll cause lateral knee pain. Now the other one, in my experience, not that common, but it does happen, is pain on the front side of the knee. And usually, again, quads can be super tight causing the pain in here, but usually like the front of the knee stuff is due to kind of a sports injury. If you've had like an ACL sprain, tear, things like that, um, that causes quite a bit of discomfort and pain. Now, what are some maybe like knee-friendly exercises? Because I get that question a lot. It's like, hey, if I've had knee pain forever, off and on, it's always been an issue, I've had my ACL reconstructed, whatever it is, right? So one, I kind of look at, okay, we need to have adequate hip mobility, adequate ankle mobility, and when those things are covered, now I'm looking at knee-friendly exercises. So things like back squats, probably not gonna be a good idea. Things like lunges, probably not gonna be a good idea. Things like step-ups, probably not gonna be a good idea. So essentially anything that requires knee flexion is going to bug the knee like a bitch. Like think about all the muscular structure that we were talking about that kind of wraps around the knee. You bending it further, now you're lengthening all this tissue, it's not going to feel fucking great. So you're gonna to have to find things that don't aggravate it. And when we do that, when we find exercises that don't aggravate the knee joint that's causing you pain, it gives it time to settle the fuck down. And then you can start working on other stuff to improve the function of the knee, which we'll get to pretty soon. So anyone that I have that has knee pain, I look on, will look for exercises that don't require a lot of knee flexion. So something as simple as glute bridges. So if you look at the nature of the glute bridge, like, yeah, I'm in knee flexion, but most people with knee pain can get into this position without any pain, and we're just doing bridges. We can do single leg glute bridges. We can do feet elevated on a box or a bench um, glute bridges. We can do hip thrusts. We can do single leg hip thrusts. And from there, if we wanted to get a little bit more fancy, single leg deadlift. Like that's gonna be a huge player because one, it doesn't require a lot of knee flexion, doesn't require a lot of ankle dorsiflexion. So we're kind of on the clear there. Deadlifts in general are gonna be great um, substitution. We can do hamstring curls with a stability ball. We can do glute bridges off the stability ball. Like anything that kind of just keeps the knee in one kind of locked position almost. When you think about any kind of bridge variation, tends to help a lot. Now, looking at the knee joint itself. So if you um, think about it, um, the knee joint does have movement itself. So there's something like your um, shin bone, so your tibia that runs down to your ankle up towards your knee. It's able to actually like move within your knee joint itself. So when I am in a seated position and I'm kind of about to do ankle cars that we were talking about before. We can teach and also assess if we have adequate tibial rotation in order to lunge, squat, run, or all any lower body um, exercise. And when I have my kin stretch classes, this is the thing that people struggle the most. So I've kind of based on my own experience, realized that two things. 
Number one, most people don't have adequate control over their knee joint and adequate um, uh, tibial rotation. And the other one is that people have limited tibial rotation, which throws a lot of things off when it comes to going to the gym. So what a knee car looks like is I drive my toes up towards my face. So now I'm locking out the ankle joint from any kind of movement and it's gonna be solely on just the knee joint itself. I'm also placing my hip into as much knee flexion as, um, not knee flexion, uh, hip flexion as much as possible to ensure that I'm only moving through the tibia. So if I rotate externally, I'm moving my tibia right now within the joint and I go back and forth just like this, almost like a little window wiper and I'm moving my tibia within my knee joint. And a lot of times, I wish I had a little sticky note, but if you think about it, if you look at my thumb, if I now rotate, now my thumb is out to the side, I rotate in, it's rotating in. So back and forth, I'm moving my tibia. Now think about this position that I'm in right now. It looks very similar to what we do in a daily basis at the gym. So what exercise forces you to go into hip flexion and ankle dorsiflexion? Squats. So if you think about it from a standing position, I'm going into hip flexion and I'm needing ankle dorsiflexion. So what I'm actually doing is asking my body to get adequate tibial rotation. So what if, based on my experience again, in my kin stretch classes that basically everyone that attends, and they do get better over time, has no control of how this tibia moves or they have limited tibial rotation, where's all the pressure gonna go? It's probably gonna go into your low back and it's probably gonna go into your knee over and over and over and over and over again when you're doing squats. And then on top of that, you've signed yourself up to a boot camp bullshit thing where you're doing squat jumps and burpees that all require adequate tibial rotation. So over and over and over, it's like a square pig in a round hole going through and now you have knee pain. So really, really when it comes down to how to fix knee pain is finding exercises that don't flare it up, which we've already went over to, and getting adequate mobility through your ankle and your hip, which we've already went through, and finding um, control over your tibia and getting um, a little bit more range of motion. So, exercise prescription for all those things. Hip cars, which I already demoed, would be number one. Um, hip 90-90 for external rotation. Finding your end range, holding it for two minutes. At the top of two minutes, you're gonna do pails and rails, meaning you're gonna drive your ankle and knee down into the ground as hard as possible for 10 seconds. After the 10 seconds, you'll realize you'll be able to go a little bit further because you just spoke to your nervous system asking for more range. From there, the next thing is your rails. So you're gonna uh, ask your nervous system again for more range of motion by thinking of driving this leg up off the ground without leaning back. And then you're gonna do the same thing on the other side. Then. For the ankles, you're gonna go into a half kneeling position, get into your end range of ankle dorsiflexion. Pails and rails uh, after the two minutes, and essentially what you're gonna do for pails is you're gonna be driving your toes down into the ground as hard as possible for 10 seconds, release, get a little bit further, and then rails will be your toes going up for 10 seconds. And then for tibial rotation, again, all of these have to be pain-free. If they're not pain-free, then you're not ready. You're gonna be in a half kneeling position. 
And guess what? You're gonna rotate your foot in, keeping your knee where it is. And now we have some rotation into internal rotation of our um, tibia and then pails and rails will be trying to push your foot against your um, your fingers and then rails will be trying to coming off it without lifting up the heel. And then you can do the same thing the other way, pails and rails here, pails and rails here. Those three for creating more um, range of motion as well as ankle cars, knee cars, hip cars, finding um, exercises that are not um, required so much knee flexion like I'm in right now, this deep squat. And over time, it will get better. It's just being patient. And again, yes, you can layer on top some um, physical therapy, chiropractic, whatever it is, to kind of speed up the process. But a lot of times it's just finding what works, keeping at it for a very long time, and the knee pain will go away. Again, the biggest thing when it comes to training around knee pain is to ensure you're not going through pain. And when pain is present, backing off and finding less range of motion within the exercise you're doing, eliminating the um, exercise completely or something else. So that being said, that was a lot of information. If you have any other questions based on knee pain or your knee pain specifically, let me know and I'm happy to help. Um, hit the show notes, add me on Facebook and Instagram, subscribe to my YouTube channel. For all those who are listening right now, hit the show notes and watch this video. I do demonstrate quite a bit of stuff. And that's it for me. If you guys have any more questions, feel free to reach out. And that's it. Until next time. What's up, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski. And this is going to be another um, presentation-styled episode. So for all my listeners, I highly recommend you watch this episode because we're going to get through a lot of different videos and kind of breaking stuff down. But if you prefer um, listening to me ramble about training and fitness stuff, then I'll try to be as descriptive as possible. Um, what we're going to get into today is the kettlebell swing. And the reason why is because no matter how much I bring up or talk about or demonstrate the importance of doing a properly executed swing. Um, I still see people just doing terrible, terrible, terrible swings where I want to pour like battery acid in my eyes. It's a little aggressive, but uh, that's, that's how I feel. Um, I have done two episodes on the benefits of um, kettlebell training, um, which I might uh, put together uh, later on into one giant episode. So I might even combine this with that one. I don't know yet, or I'm going to do a separate one. But um, I'm excited today because I've done um, even some videos on no proper deadlifting and things like that. But today we're actually going to break down like the, you know, start of how to kettlebell swing 
to the end. And I'll show you my entire progression of what I do with clients. Because I think a lot of times when people want to do swings or they just assume like, okay, I'm going to start swinging. But the issue with that is that, you know, you might not have the prerequisites or the movement um, kind of kinesthetic awareness in order to do so. And, you know, yes, my show is geared towards weight loss, but this is the stuff that other people don't think about because kettlebell swings like are probably one of the best exercises to um, create like a metabolic disturbance. So your body can burn calories, you know, build muscle and burn fat, that whole uh, shindig. And even for myself, the moment I, you know, change my training to kettlebells only, I get stronger and leaner really, really quick. Whereas if I put an emphasis on deadlifting heavy and only focus on deadlifts, I don't really get um, as lean, right? There is something to training with kettlebells that allows you to burn more calories. And in my other videos, I do explain that, you know, the kettlebell becomes part of your body, it becomes um, part of your limbs. Like if you're holding onto a kettlebell, now you made your lever length longer, meaning the longer the lever length, the more energy it takes to control it. So an example that I give to you know, clients all the time is like, if I hold a dumbbell here in a goblet position, you know, I do squats, not too bad, but the moment I take that weight and start pushing in front of me, it's like, Oh, I need to stabilize more. I need to hold on to it more. Holy shit. It's really hard. And if I have my arms out straight, then I'm like, fuck, this is really challenging. So now imagine taking a uh, object like a kettlebell and utilizing it where it elongates your lever for every single exercise. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of, you know, energy that our body has to produce and utilize. And if you do that for all your workouts, like it's not, a, it's not like rocket science to figure that it's going to give you your most bang for your buck type of um, workout for fat loss and strength. So let's uh, screen share and hopefully every time I do this, I always have like no idea how to do it. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I need to put this down. So just like last time, I'm going to make myself a little bit bigger. I'm also going to, there we go. Okay. So when it comes to um, kettlebell swings, where do you even start? So the first thing, because I'm going to assume that everyone listening that is not doing swings right now, that moves pretty well, has probably skipped all these steps and just started swinging. And you may be at a position where if I asked you, do you know the difference between a hinge and a squat? You'd probably be able to answer as, you know, a squat is like when you like you squat. And then if I asked you what a hip hinge was, they, you would probably be like something to do with my hips. So already I know that your swing is probably not going to be the greatest. And I actually have a post going out tomorrow uh, about deadlifting. If you should be deadlifting off the floor. And one of the questions is like, do you know the difference between a hip hinge and a squat? And most likely people can't give me an educated answer on it. And it's something that we need to understand. So one of the biggest mistakes is people squatting while swinging. Swinging. 
um, is a complete hip hinge movement. And actually what I wanna see if I can do is show you some really, really, oh, look at that. And you can see that I was researching um, the benefits of elevated deadlifts. And funny enough, there is no article out there about elevated deadlifts, all about, it's all about deficit um, deadlifts, but um, bad kettlebell swing form. There you go. Um, I might not be able to find, well, maybe this guy. Maybe we'll start with this, but I'm gonna mute this. So there is something called an American swing where you go overhead, which I also don't like. So if you look at how the bell swings, so let's maybe, we're gonna go all over the place here. If you look at the American swing con compared to the traditional um, hard style swing. So in the kettlebell world, um, there's a guy named Pavel who is from Russia that brought kettlebell training into America that made it very popular. So the Russian styled swing literally will just go to maybe shoulder height or maybe a little bit lower, whereas CrossFit created this thing called the American swing. The reason why I don't like it is, as you can see, as the bell is up top, as it comes down, you are now fighting gravity to drive it back. So a lot of times with an inexperienced person that may not have the best kinesthetic awareness, the best body movement or mechanics or some sort of mobility restriction, they're going to end up utilizing the lower back. Let's see if I can, I don't even know why this guy's turning his head now too. So see, like he has to actually now at this point, slow down whatever bell this is. So imagine if you're using like a 24 kilo, that's 53 pounds that you have to slow down on the way down. Yeah, still slowing it down. At this point, he should be already pushing his hips back. Now he kind of is. Now he's putting it down. I love how this is supposed to be a, a tutorial on how to do an American swing. I always find too, when I watch videos of like CrossFit coaches and we're going to like watch this a little bit, but you can also see it doesn't even have that great overhead mobility too, which is another thing that um, you need in order to do the stupid exercise. Who would have thought that this episode was going to be just us tearing apart the freaking American swing, but I kind of like it. Come on, get to the... So look at how he actually swings his um, hips. It's kind of like a swoop with his knees. Okay, anyway, I was trying to look for uh, uh, a squat swing. Because that was the original thing that 
Ooh, I wonder if this is going to uh, be it. I feel like we're watching like a live stream. Okay, this is also a terrible swing. And I'll just tell you why. There's like absolutely no power in that swing, but now she's doing some sort of... Okay, this is going to be a lot harder than... Actually, funny enough, look at that. Pavel on um, Joe Rogan. So I actually had this saved in my uh, to-dos to watch, but Pavel is like this popular that he got invited to Joe Rogan's show to talk about kettlebell training. So kind of side note, if you're interested in kettlebell training at all, 100% go and watch this uh, episode. Okay, you know what? I'm not going to be able to find this for you guys, but um, here. we're going to have to shift gears here and guys, I thought I would be more prepared. Here we go. All right, so the biggest thing is people squat when they swing. If you squat when you swing, you won't be able to generate enough force to um, propel the kettlebell forward. If you squat, if you think about how the squat is designed, you're going down and back up. And then you have to take this bell in front of you and drive it through your hips and drive it forward. So it takes more time for you to drive up into hip extension to propel the kettlebell forward. Whereas if you hinge back with your hips, then you have more um, like a faster rate of force pushing the kettlebell forward. So every single person that I train, um, we learn how to hip hinge first. So something as simple as this guy here, a hip hinge. And there's so many different ways of doing a hinge where in this case, this is an old video. I mean, look how terrible the quality is where I'm utilizing the dowel to push um, into my glutes to engage my lats because lat tension is going to be huge when I am swinging. And the bench that are right, that's right behind my calves is giving me kind of feedback if I am doing a true hinge. Because if I say push back and I lose contact with the bench here, um, I'm into a squat. So now this is a great teaching tool for me to, or for my client to learn how to properly hinge. Sometimes this doesn't work. And what I've done recently is is a band resistant hinge wherever it is. One moment. Here we go. Okay, enough with the pop-ups. So this one I really like using. So we'll use a band, wrap it around 
a dowel and now I have tension. So I have to keep tension in my lats. So when I grip the kettlebell, I'm trying to engage my lats to keep that stiffness. So I am now um, teaching my body how to create tension. I'm teaching my body how to break the dowel, which I'm gonna utilize on the kettlebell and I'm learning how to hinge. So how we do this, I literally get people to slide the dowel down as they push their hips back to kind of re, um, re, uh, enforce that pattern that we're gonna utilize with the kettlebell. This is kind of like the first four weeks of training is learning how to hinge, not how to squat, just hinge, 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 and creating tension. So the other way that I will teach someone how to create tension for the swing is something called RKC plank. So RKC is an abbreviation for Russian kettlebell certification. And in this video, it'll look like a standard front plank, but there's gonna be a few things that you'll notice is when I am engaging into this front plank, I'm actually driving my elbows to my toes and I'm pulling my toes into my elbows. So that's gonna create in my kind of torso midsection, uh, like a high amount of tension. So when I do that, I also will reset because holding tension like that constantly, you're gonna like blow a blood vessel or can get a hernia or something. So as I do this, all I'm doing is elbows to toes, toes to elbows, and breathing out with a, they call it like a fire breath, like a hiss, like a tss, 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 tss. So if you, even if you do that right now, just a tss, think of any kind of MMA or martial artist, every time they throw a punch or a kick, they have that hissing sound to create tension and, you know, produce the movement. So kettlebell training is exactly the same thing. You you know, breathe in through your nose and then you hiss out the movement. So here I'm teaching someone how to utilize that breath. So as I come up and reset, you can see my mouth going through the breaths and then I reset every single time, creating tension. You can even see how my elbows just drove in there. All right, so constantly these two things, the RKC front plank and the um, band resisted uh, deadlift is kind of like that four week phase one into uh, kettlebell swings. From there, we've kind of built a foundation. Now we can move on to something a little bit more um, advanced where we're going to do a kettlebell deadlift. If I can find, here we go. So putting the two things that we just learned is our tension and hip hinge. So as I get into my deadlift position and um, squeezing the handle to create that lat tension that we were learning with the band, I am utilizing my RKC breath where I'm taking a big belly breath in and then exhaling hard at the top and squeezing my glutes at the top as well. So that would be one of the exercises in the next phase is one getting um, familiar with, you know, a kettlebell handle because, you know, sometimes people are just used to 
utilizing dumbbells and this is the first time they've ever, you know, really played around with a kettlebell. So I'm going to um, introduce the bell this way. We're squeezing tight, we're having fun, you know, we're moving forward. The other thing too, um, might take a second to find what I'm looking for. I have a lot of kettlebell videos. This is another reason why you guys should um, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Is like if you're looking for a library of, um, actually, here we go. Episode 381 and 377 are my two episodes on kettlebell training if you want anything specific on the benefits of it. So, looking for a specific video where we set up for, here we go, kettlebell snapbacks. So this will now kind of implement the um, position for learning how to swing. So we'll start off. So a lot of people, and this is another mistake, is a lot of people don't set up properly. They kind of just pick up the bell and they start swinging. And they kind of just like put the kettlebell in between their legs and they start like thrusting towards the, in front of them. And that's how they get started. But that doesn't make sense to me. Like in order to make the swing, um, you know, make sense to kind of start off with it a little bit in front of you, because the moment you drive it back for one rep, it already has, you know, the potential energy. So if you think of like um, an object in motion, it's that much easier to move because most people, when they swing incorrectly and they just pick it up from a standing position and they start moving, it's kind of awkward in the beginning. So use like literally physics to make things easier for yourself. So in this case, we're going to start the kettlebell in front of us. And this is called like the three point position. And the first movement is snapping back the kettlebell to there and then back there and back there and back and i'm still utilizing my hinge um position and also utilizing my lat tension my rkc breath it's all coming into play here and this becomes a quite challenging exercise if you do it right and a little throwback to when i had my long hair and also I don't even have my full sleeve here. Yeah. Anyway, so this is kind of phase two into getting swings um, into play. So now we've created um, our foundation. Now we're kind of getting closer to how a swing should go. So we've already addressed two major mistakes that a lot of people do is they squat and swing and they start their swing standing and they do a weird like hip thrusting thing before the bell actually starts swing. Now, the next thing that I like to implement from there is something called the power swing. And we're gonna look it up here where we essentially do one 
um, one perfect swing every single time. So, and then we set it down. So same tripod position, swing, and then back down. Drive back, swing, and back down. A couple things that I wanna note here, and I wanna to try to find the angle. Right there. So step one, we're in that tripod or three point position. I drive it back. And also here's another thing that I absolutely hate when people swing. Look at my head. My eyes are facing down towards the floor. A lot of times people crank their neck up. Here's the thing with our spine. Our neck is kind of, I like to use the analogy kind of like the driver of the rest of our spine. So if our neck cranks up into extension, our lumbar spine likes to copy it. So a lot of times when people feel um, their low backs and swings, it's most likely because they're literally looking up into extension with their neck while they're in this down position. And then the bar back, low back is arched. And if you're swinging incorrectly, you're like stopping the momentum and you have a extended uh, lumbar spine and that's not going to feel really good. So head is always neutral with the rest of their spine, just like deadlifting. If you're one of those people that are deadlifting with the neck up, then we have more issues to, <laughs> to unravel. But as we come up, uh, this angle is not the greatest. Hopefully we got a better view. There we go. So the other thing here too, if you look at my mouth, I'm hissing out. A lot of people tend to forget to breathe properly. So if we start from the very beginning, we got a good hinge, we got tension building, head is neutral, and the snap is the big thing. A lot of times people, when they get to the top of their swing, they actually don't squeeze their glutes hard enough to drive their hips forward. Sometimes they leave their hips back and they don't fully extend. So if you want to generate force, that force has to come from somewhere, which is your glutes. Just like when you deadlift, it all comes from your glutes. Just like if you're sprinting, it all comes from your glutes. If you don't utilize proper hip extension, then things like overactive hamstrings and low back pain come into play. You never see, you know, the fastest people on earth or the strongest people on the deadlift with small glutes. They're like huge. They're gigantic because they know how to generate a lot of force. So kettlebell training does the same thing. It teaches your glutes how to generate a lot of force. A lot of people get low back pain because they don't have the prerequisites in order to do this. And they need to develop, you know, basic lumbopelvic stability with, um, utilizing their glutes in say, um, a general glute bridge. So when I teach the kettlebell swing, I literally tell people you want to squeeze your ass as hard as fucking possible to generate enough force for this bell to go up. The other thing that most people don't get is the height of the kettlebell. Like this is almost like probably the same level as like my rib cage that like the beginning of my rib cage almost to where like my belly button is the kettlebell does not have to be up here because a lot of times people will make another mistake where they think a kettlebell swing 
has some sort of front raise into it. No. The only reason why this bell is here is because of my glutes driving forward as hard as possible. So another kind of cue I give to people is as you extend your hips and you squeeze your glutes, you also want to think of pulling your kneecaps to the ceiling. So now you have the backside of your hip like joints um, finish the movement and then the musculature in front of your hip is coming together and it creates that isometric contraction, that, you know, solid base in order for you to properly swing this kettlebell. Now, the height that I have here is all, again, generated through my hips. And the other thing too, is if you can actually see, I have a slight bend in my elbows, which is a huge thing. Your elbows don't need to be locked out when you're doing a kettlebell swing. Why? When you start getting heavier weights, the last thing you want to do is have both of your elbows locked out, holding onto this weight, because when you get to that end position and then the weight starts coming down, all that tension is going to start going into your elbows and people are going to start having, you know, tendinopathies on their elbows, which is the last thing you want, right? So always have a slight bend in your elbows. And the other thing too, is like kettlebell training is about efficiency, right? So if I want to try to get, you know, 30 swings in 45 seconds, if I have a longer lever and keep it there, it's going to take that much longer to go down and that much longer to get back up. If I have a shorter lever, now I can bring that kettlebell between my legs faster coming back up. Now, after I have all those things put together, we're going to look at just a basic kettlebell swing. And I want to show you guys my setup, tension. So if you look at my hips, look at that snap. That's what most people really need to focus on is that hip snap. Let's watch that again. And you can also look at my mouth. That was a terrible still shot of mine. <laughs> but I'm breathing out hard. And again, this is another example. Like my other video, I would say that that one's kind of embarrassing of how high the bell went. And the lower, the better. Like it's efficiency, right? So good bend in the elbows, good height. And now I can bring it back through my hips faster so I can get more swings in, right? It's all about work capacity. Now, that is kind of the entire, you know, I would say step-by-step -step approach to, um, to my kind of, method behind kettlebell swings. Now I'm going to stop that. Perfect. Um, there's always little things that you need to add in. Everyone's going to be different, but if you kind of look back of everything that we just did, we learned how to hinge. We learned the difference between a squat and a hinge. We learned about tension. We learned about breath. And then we learned about the start position and implementing all the stuff that we learned in that start position. Then we 
took the time to slow down the swing to do one perfect rep every single time. And then we challenged it where we did continuous reps, right? It's kind of like any, any other skill, like it takes some time to put everything together. So say we had to troubleshoot, say we had some problems when we got to the power swing and you're not extending your hips forward, or you're not getting that snap. Like I mentioned, you know, hammering things like barbell hip thrusts, a ton of glute bridges, um, anything glute related that will teach the extension, like heavy deadlifts, like anything like that is going to help quite a bit. Um, it can also be something as simple as like moving your feet a little bit wider, almost going into like a sumo stance could help. Maybe you have some sort of anatomy that is preventing you from getting into a traditional kind of kettlebell swing stance. And all you have to do is, you know, go a little bit wider and voila, like your kettlebell swing looks great. But the biggest thing is that you need to be able to practice it over and over and over again. And that's why I have these kind of stages so that by the time we get to a full swing, you know, the prerequisites of learning how to hinge are already there in kind of like glued into your brain that you know that when I grab this kettlebell, I'm hinging and I'm not going to squat and do something weird. Right. And it's also about speed too. A lot of times people will do kettlebell swing slow, which makes no sense. It's a power exercise. You want to be explosive. And the other mistake that most people do is they pick up a kettlebell way too light. I see this, especially with women. It's like, they want to do kettlebell swings in their class and they go pick up an eight kilo. Like that's not going to do anything for you. If I gave you a 16 kilo, which is 35 pounds, what's your initial reaction? Oh shit, this is heavy. I need to brace. I need to squeeze it tight. I got to make sure I don't you know, fuck myself over. So now you're already so much further ahead than picking up an eight kilo where you're probably going to put it down. Like you don't care about it. And that's what's going to actually injure your low back because it's going to buckle because you're going to go into uh, flexion and, load that pattern. So all these little things matter. And I think a lot of people kind of discredit kettlebell swings. I think it's like a, as easy as picking up a dumbbell and doing bicep curls. Like, no, it's a skill-based exercise that takes a lot of practice before you actually get the benefit. But when you actually take the time to learn how to do it, man, do you see results come a lot quicker than just doing a squat to front raise with an eight kilo kettlebell. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna end it there because I feel like I can probably talk forever on kettlebell training and I'll end up rambling for like three hours, but um, thank you for listening or watching. Um, if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, do that right now. Um, and even at the end of the video, it'll say subscribe. So hundred percent do that. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Um, add me on Facebook, add me on Instagram, hit the show notes to this episode to watch it if you're listening and share, 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 share this podcast with your friends and family. Until next time, you guys, you guys are amazing.